Welcome to the River Bluff Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you enjoy the sermon from lead pastor Joe Still. And for more information about us, please visit riverbluff.org. Well, good morning. I'm uh, grateful to be here with, with each of you uh, that are in the house. And for those who are at their house, uh, thank you for uh, extending the invitation for me to join you join you there. Um, I'm very grateful for it and don't take it, take it lightly. Um, when I first began to follow Christ uh, as a 16-year-old, someone introduced me to uh, a poem that you probably, maybe many of you have already heard before, but I would like to share it with you uh, this morning. And it's entitled, One Solitary Life. Let me, let me read it to you. It says, he was born in an obscure village the child of a peasant woman. He grew up in another obscure village where he worked in a carpenter shop until he was 30. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never went to college. He never visited a big city. He never traveled more than 200 miles from the place where he was born. He did none of those things usually associated with greatness. He had no credentials but himself. He was only 33 and his friends ran away. One of them denied him. He was turned over to his enemies, and he went through the mockery of a trial. He was nailed to a cross between two thieves. While dying, his executioners gambled for his clothing, the only property he had on earth. When he was dead, he was laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. Nineteen centuries have come and gone, and today Jesus is a central figure of the human race and the leader of mankind's progress. All of the armies that have ever marched, all of the navies that have ever sailed, all of the parliaments that have ever sat, all of the kings that have ever reigned put together have not affected the life of mankind on this earth as powerfully as that one solitary life. No one has influenced the world like Jesus. No one. Now, think of it this way. Here's another way to kind of ponder that thought. Some of the greatest intellectuals of the ancient world, think about Socrates. Socrates taught for for 40 years. Plato taught for 50 years, and then Aristotle taught for another 40 years. That's 130 years of combined Greek philosophical teaching. Jesus came, and he began his teaching ministry, and it lasted three and a half years. But the impact of his influence has had on history exceeds all of their thoughts combined. Now, growing up, I I heard about him. I grew up up knowing facts uh, about him. But when I was 16 years old, I, I met him. I mean, I came face to face with him in my spirit, and I was changed in that moment, something, there was a transfer that took place. And for the last several weeks now, we have been looking at that one solitary life and the transformation that, that he can bring. And we've been doing it through the lens of the Old Testament prophets. And we've seen how Jesus came and fulfilled so many of the predictions that were made by those Old Testament prophets concerning what the Messiah, the, the king, this deliverer, what he'd be like. And we've done that because the apostles, those closest to Jesus, those who saw him uh, murdered on a cross and saw him raised from the dead, they appealed, in order to authenticate Jesus as a Messiah, they appealed to two things. First was to his resurrection. 
Secondly, they appeal to fulfilled prophecy. Now, if you've been with us, you, you may remember that it wasn't just like one or two or three predictions. There were hundreds of predictions over the course of about 1,500 years that spoke of this God's coming Messiah given by multiple prophets. And because they were written so far in advance, actually hundreds of years before Jesus' life on this earth, we can look at them and we can say and know this is far more than just some good guessing or some logical deduction. Prophecy actually lends itself to statistical analysis. In, in the first message of this series back on April 19th, you can go look at that if you want to, we went to great lengths to point out the significance of the reasonable order of the magnitude that can be estimated through statistical probability. We noted that mathematicians have figured that the odds of just one man, just, just one, in history fulfilling only eight of the predictions that Jesus fulfilled is one in ten to the 17th power. We, 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 we read and, and studied that the odds of anyone fulfilling 16 of those predictions that Jesus' life fulfilled is 1 in 10 to the 45th power. Now, if you, if you know anything about math, you start to realize these are enormous numbers. The, the odds, by the way, by the way there, there were 300 plus. Some, some will tell you 330, some 332. Some are more specific than others. But there, there are hundreds of these. The odds of any one life fulfilling just 30 of those is 1 in 10 to the 100th power. It's like it, it just can't be done. When I was taken through a study of this for the very first time as a freshman in college, it did something in me. It crystallized my faith at a new level, uh, my ability to trust God. And I'm praying that it's doing that in you as well. Because, see, this shows us the reality of God. It, it, it powerfully displays the, the authenticity of, of, of God's Word, this, this book that we're you know, learning from that's so different from any other holy book on the planet. And it shows us the validity of that Jesus is the Son of God, third member of the Trinity, God come to earth in the flesh. Now, I want us to take kind of a leap forward in this series. To date, we've mostly looked at things like his birth and the genealogical record, kind of the, the who, what, and where uh, of Jesus. But today, I want us to, to turn our attention to examine his, his adult life, his, his ministry, and the Old Testament prophecies that related to that. There were many. Matthew goes into, the gospel writer Matthew does that. Uh, he opens our hearts and minds to it in Matthew chapter 12, and we're going to look there. So if you want to go ahead and open your Bibles to Matthew 12, we're going to get there in just a second. But what we're going to see in, when we read that is that Matthew quotes from Isaiah chapter 42, beginning in verse 18, that we're going to pay attention to especially. And what we're going to really answer is not the who, you know, who, what, where questions. What we're going to answer is the question why. Why did Jesus come? What, what was the purpose of his coming? And Matthew, in his quoting of Isaiah, are going to point out that there are at least four purposes defined here that tell us why Jesus came. And I want us, I want us to dive in uh, to, to those this morning. And the first thing that we're going to see um, immediately when, when uh, Matthew is quoting um, from Isaiah, in Matthew chapter 12, verses 17 and 18, uh, he, uh, the, Isaiah the prophet says this, This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant 
whom I have chosen, my beloved, with whom my soul is well pleased. That's how that, that prophecy begins. And Matthew, Matthew displays this, and what he's showing us is a, a purpose for Christ's coming. Jesus' purpose for leaving heaven and coming to earth was to be a servant. He came to be a servant. That's the word that Isaiah used. And I think it's one of the most beautiful descriptions uh, of, of the Lord Jesus, that he would come and be of servant. Now, I, I said earlier there are far more uh, Old Testament prophecies about his, his life than just about his birth. And I want to quickly run through. These are going to come really fast. Uh, but a sampling of these, uh, they're, they're in your at-home worship guide. You can also find them on YouVersion uh, uh, if you have access to that. But here's, here's several of these. First of all, the prophets predicted, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, that he would be preceded by a herald, a, a messenger who would come before Messiah. Ma- Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, also predicts that as well. Additionally, it foretells that the coming Messiah would one day enter the temple very suddenly. And both of those things happened. John the Baptist was predicted uh, as the herald that was coming uh, before Jesus as Messiah. And Jesus did one day show up at the temple very suddenly with a whip, driving out money changers who were preventing Gentiles especially from worshiping. Isaiah chapter 35 foretold that the Messiah would perform miracles. Psalm 78 tells us that he would teach in parables. Isaiah 9 tells us that he would begin his ministry in the region of Galilee. Isaiah 61 points to the fact that he would be sent to heal the brokenhearted. You may remember that Jesus actually quoted from the prophet Isaiah uh, chapter 61 in the synagogue when he said that uh, God had sent him to bind up the brokenhearted. In Psalm chapter 8 verse 2, it was foretold that he'd be praised by children. In Zechariah 9.9, that he'd ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. Both of those things happen on what we know as Palm Sunday. They happen. Isaiah 53.3 predicted that he'd be rejected by the Jewish nation. Daniel chapter 9 verses 25 and 26 foretold of his first coming, first coming on a very precise timetable and that he would be killed before his kingdom would be recognized by, by us. Psalm 41 predicted that he'd be betrayed by a close friend. Isaiah 53 tells us that he'd be silent when he was stood accused publicly. But of all those predictions... All of those predictions of what he would do in his life, the Messiah would do in his life, all of those could be summed up with a single word, servant. He would be a servant to God the Father. He he would serve. I don't know if you know this, but uh, some have counted and and tell us that there are uh, about 150 different names in the Scriptures for Jesus. And you may know some of them. In, in Isaiah chapter 9, it, it's, we're told that his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, uh, Prince of Peace. In John chapter 6, Jesus referred to himself as the bread of life. In Mark 12 and Luke 20, Jesus spoke of himself as the cornerstone that the builders rejected. In John chapter 10, uh, Jesus called himself the, the good shepherd. In 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter called him the chief shepherd. And these are just a a small smattering of the names given to him in the scriptures. But Isaiah's 
favorite name by far for Jesus, for Messiah, was servant. That he would be the servant of the Lord. Now, I want to back up so we can kind of look at the context of why Matthew quotes Isaiah at this point in his gospel account. And there's an important event happening. And so I want to go back to verse 9 of Matthew chapter 12 and read it together in all of its context. And so I want us to see kind of what's happening there. So if you've got your Bibles open to Matthew chapter 12, let's start reading together uh, in verse 9. And it says this, it says, He, speaking of Jesus, went on from there. And he entered their synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Now, anybody out there think, that seems like a dumb question. You know, why why would anybody kind of ask a question like that? Can somebody be healed on the, is it lawful? Now, I'm just going to go ahead and tell you, the cynical part of me wishes that Jesus would have just looked at him and said, why don't you try it? That's just, you know, me. But notice why they asked it. Verse 10 tells us why they asked it. So that they might accuse him. It's very important to see this context for for, uh, why Matthew inserts this prophecy uh, of Isaiah. And Jesus said to them, Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls in a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep. So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out. And it was restored, healthy, like the other. But the Pharisees went out and they conspired against him how to destroy him. This incited the Pharisees. And then Jesus said, because he was aware he withdrew from there. And many followed him, and he healed them all, and he ordered them not to make him known. And this was done, Matthew says, to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved, with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. This is the word of the Lord. Now, What we see in this passage is the resistance that's actually building against Jesus, especially by the religious leaders of the day. They're at a point now, they want to destroy him is what the scripture says. And here's why, I think. When Jesus came on the scene, there was movement early in thinking he may be the Messiah. But then he disappointed them. See, Jesus must have been a a horrible disappointment to them because in their minds, Messiah, when he comes, he's going to deliver them from Roman oppression. He's going to drive out their their captors, and he's going to put Israel as the the top kingdom in the world, and he's going to establish this earthly kingdom. And each of those guys thought, well, we'll get special seats at the table. We'll get to rule over things. Yeah, 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 it's cool that he heals people. that's, That's good stuff. But we want something else. Now, here's the truth. 
Jesus did not come to meet their expectations, and so they are against him. And Jesus, interestingly, not wanting to make a big deal out of, uh, out of you know, his Messiahship, he, he's kind of this low-key Messiah at this point. He, he sort of just backs out, just pulls away, uh, the, the Scripture tells us. He withdraws. And he tells people, he, he, he goes on healing, but he tells the people he heals, don't tell anybody. Now, friends, that would be very hard to do. I mean, it would be a miracle if people actually kept quiet about something like this. I mean, think you, you've had this, this disease maybe your whole life, and now somebody comes along and cures it. But they, they, they reject him because he doesn't meet their expectation. And the Bible tells us that they leave that place trying to trap him. That's the context of the prophecy that Matthew pulls to show us who this, this Messiah is. They, they expected that when Messiah came that he would have a rigid interpretation of the law. In fact, they basically said that the, the Messiah would be the servant of the law. And Matthew, I think, uniquely places this prophecy from Isaiah where he does because it says, no, according to the word of the Lord through Isaiah, the Messiah will be the servant of the Lord, not the law. He's here to please the Father, not the expectation of the people. That's not what he came for. I don't know if you know this, but when Jesus woke up every morning, there was one dominating thought that filled his mind. And we know this because it's in Scripture. And it was to please his Father. He was, he was on that mission. He was here to redeem the world from sin. Jesus knew what he was here to do. And so in John chapter 9, we find him saying, I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Always. Don't you wish you could say that? I, I, I wish I could. I can't say that I do that all the time. But Jesus could. I always do the things that are pleasing to my Father. In fact, Jesus goes on to say in John chapter 4, my food, my, my sustenance, my, my life is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. So see, Jesus came to serve the Father, but he also came to serve his followers. And we, we see this by the demonstration that he gave us in his ministry. I mean, he washed their feet. If, if you wash my feet, I would consider you a servant you know? Uh, he, he taught them truth. He miraculously multiplied food to, to feed his followers. But still, even they had expectations of Jesus that he never met. P please hear this. Jesus, Jesus wants to serve you as well. He came, Jesus came to serve you as well. But now that doesn't mean he's going to give you everything that you want. He has promised to meet all the needs of his children, of his family, but that doesn't mean you get everything you want. He came to serve you, but that doesn't mean he'll always make you comfortable. It doesn't mean that he'll heal you every time you have a toe ache. Or that he'll open up a parking lot up front, you know, at Lowe's when things are so crazy like they are right now. Jesus even ultimately tells us why he came to serve. In Matthew chapter 20 and Mark 10, he said this, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And then he tells us how, to give his life as a ransom for many. 
So please hear me clearly. Jesus Christ did not come to fulfill your expectations. Jesus Christ came to end your condemnation. That's how he best serves us, by giving his life as a ransom for many. It's what God sent him to do. It's why, why the Bible says God was so pleased with his son. See, Jesus left heaven and came to earth. It was a purpose to be a servant. Second reason that he came was this. His purpose for leaving heaven and coming to earth was to also be a messenger. He came with a message for us from God. Now, if you look in, in uh, the verse 18 of Matthew 12, the, the second part, he's quoting Isaiah here. He says this, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. Now, that, that word there that we translate proclaim is the Greek word apangelo, and it literally means to declare, to, to tell, to preach, to, to teach. And when, when Isaiah is saying it, he's saying when, when my servant comes, he's going to have a message of truth that people need to hear. Now, Jesus, Jesus did a lot of really cool things. Wouldn't you think walking on water was pretty cool? I, I'd say that, you know, that's pretty cool. Um, he healed people who were sick. Man, that would be awesome if he was here doing that in our presence today. He raised people who had actually died from death. Man, that was unheard of. He held little children, and he blessed them. And parents just thought, man, this is awesome. But Jesus didn't come to do tricks to make people feel good. You know, one of the things that I'm constantly amazed at is how so many people think that Jesus came primarily, you know, to just be a good example, to live a wonderful life, to show us what human potential looks like, you know, that that's primarily why he came. He did all of that. He, he absolutely did. But he always did it in the context of the message God sent him to deliver. Those things were always done in that context. And so Jesus declared, Jesus preached, Jesus, Jesus taught. In Luke chapter 20, we see Jesus entering the temple, and it says this. Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching what? The gospel. Jesus taught and Jesus preached the gospel of God. In Mark chapter 4, it tells us that Jesus taught beside the sea. It also tells us the crowd got so big they kind of pushed on him that he got in a boat and he taught from a boat. In Matthew chapter 5, we read that he taught on a mountainside. The Gospels also tell us that he taught in their synagogues and in the temple. Mark 2 tells us about this incredible moment when Jesus, he's living in Capernaum and he's, he's staying at Peter's house and he, he's, he's been gone and he comes back and he comes to the house and we're told this, and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. There was no social distancing happening at that house at that time, okay? So many gathered, the Bible says, that there was no more room at the door. You couldn't even poke your head in. Yeah, I can't poke my head in a round crowd ever, but um, the, even tall people couldn't. They, they couldn't get in. They, they couldn't see. It was just so crowded. And what did Jesus do in that moment with this great crowd around him? The Bible says he preached the word to them. Now, what would you do with a house full of people, knowing that many of them 
have disease, have maladies, have broken hearts, lots of needs in, the, in that group. What, what, what would you think was the most important thing? Well, for Jesus, the most important thing was that he would preach to them. Now, if you go on and read in Mark 2, he does a healing. It's a miracle. It's incredible. But even in that moment, using that healing, he talks about the kingdom of God. Why? Because Jesus knows something. Because hearing truth for your soul is more important than getting healing for your body. See, you you could live here on earth perfectly healthy all of your days and then die without Jesus and you will be hopeless for all eternity. So what good would it be? So Jesus wanted to make sure while he has them that the first thing he always does is he preaches the good news, the gospel to them. In the gospels, we read that Jesus is said to teach about 36 times. Uh, depending on what translation you do to your search in, he's called teacher 47 times. And, and we know why. Uh, the Lord himself s- said this in John chapter 8. And you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. See, that's why. So that you would know the truth so that you could be free. Jesus was a messenger of God's truth to people in bondage, to, to our own lies and if you're like me, there have been tons of lies in my life that I have believed. This is, this is why I personally, and why our church corporately, why we devote ourselves to this book. Why, why, we, why we teach this. Why, why if you show up here, you're going to hear us say, oh, open your Bible too. Now, I, I just, if we stop doing that here, I want to tell you it's time for you to start looking for another church. It, it, it just is. One of the things that, that I know, and, and I read of many others who have this, share this growing concern that as time goes on, that the evangelical churches are moving away from teaching God's Word as central to everything that we do. It should be central to everything. It seems that there's been this movement uh, uh, among some that they want to know more about what Oprah says. Or what, you know, their favorite pop musician says, that those things are becoming more important than what Scripture has already said. And yeah, it it might produce people a lot of zeal, but they'll be short on truth. And eventually, the zeal will fade. See, God warned of of that through the prophet uh, Hosea. In Hosea chapter 4, verse 6, God said this, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. And Jesus came knowing that, taught them truth. Jesus preached and Jesus proclaimed the message of God's gospel. And friends, you and I have to remember that if, if, when every time you pick this book up, you were holding a miracle in your hand. You ever thought about that? You're, when you pick up the Word of God, you are holding a miracle in your hand. You want to know what God has to say? Open this. Open this and, and you'll find out. You'll know what He said back then, but guess what? He's still saying the same thing today to us because the human heart hasn't changed. Now, sure, we live in a time where diseases, they've changed. We live in a time when technology, it's changed. But the greatest need that human beings still have is the gospel of God found only in Jesus, the good news 
about Jesus. And I want you to notice something else. Jesus did not only come with a message, but the scripture that we're reading today tells us that the message that he came was a message to declare justice to who? You remember? Look back at verse 18. He will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. Now, I don't know about you, but I get really excited about that word, that, that word Gentiles, because I'm not Jewish. And I'm just looking around the room, and even though there aren't many people here, I don't know that any of the folks in this room are Jewish, and I doubt many of you hearing this today are, are Jewish. We're not part of the whole Jewish covenant that God has preserved throughout history. I'm an outsider. Most of you are outsiders. Do you know if you and I were living in the days when Jesus walked the earth and, and taught that the closest that we could go in the, in the temple was this, the outer court. It was called the court of the Gentiles. We couldn't go any further. We might, we might hear, hey, it's really cool down in there. But we couldn't go in and check it out for ourselves because that was reserved only for Jewish people. So Jesus came to proclaim truth not just to the Jews but to the world. You remember John 3, 16? God so loved what? He loved, he loved the world, the whole world. And that was God's plan from the start, from the very beginning of time. God said to the father of, of, of Judaism, he, he spoke these words to Abraham way back in, in Genesis chapter 12. He says, Abraham, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Not just the Jewish families, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And friends, that includes your family because of Jesus. Now, we, we talked about this a, a few weeks ago, but it fascinate, fascinates me that some of the very first people to worship Jesus were Gentiles. You, you remember we, we talked about the Magi? They came from hundreds and hundreds of miles away to find Jesus so that they might worship him. And the Jewish leaders of that day, you, you may recall, they wouldn't even walk five miles to see if the birth of their Messiah had actually even taken place. But Gentiles worshipped him. I also find it fascinating that Matthew records in Matthew 8, Jesus making this statement, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. Now you might think, oh man, that must have been a spiritual leader in the Jewish nation. It wasn't. It was a Roman centurion, a Gentile. I also find it fascinating that one of the earliest, and I actually think, uh, from my study of the Gospels, I think the first person that Jesus actually said to somebody, I am the Messiah, was to who? Who, who, who might you think? John chapter 4, verse 26 is where I find this. Jesus said to her, it was to a woman, I am the Messiah. And it was the Samaritan woman at the well. So one of the most important things you need to know uh, about Jesus Christ is that he has a message for who you, no matter who you are. He has truth that he wants you to hear. Jesus' purpose for leaving heaven and coming to earth was to be a servant and to be a messenger. And third, it was to be an encourager. If you go back to our, our primary text, Matthew chapter 12, in verse 19, you'll read this. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. We use those words a lot around here, don't we? 
Those are kind of strange to our ears. Give me, give me a second to unpack it. See, in verse 19, that word that is used, quarrel, it also means to annoy. It means to harass. Anybody ever met an annoying Christian? Uh, you know, somebody who's just obnoxious in the presence of the unbelieving world around them, you know? If somebody's coming to mind, don't shout their name out right now. But I, please hear me. I'm not talking about somebody who is bold enough in their love for God to, in a spirit of gentleness, maybe ask a stranger, could I pray for you? I'm not talking about that kind of boldness. I'm not talking about somebody who, in conversation, works their personal story of Jesus into a casual conversation. I'm talking about somebody who is just flat out annoying. I, I've, I've not met many, but I've, I've met a few, and I just try to get out of their way. Um, it, 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 see, this is what this passage is telling us. Jesus did not come to annoy people. He didn't. Notice the next words. Not quarrel or cry aloud. That, that word cry aloud means he's not going to scream excitedly. In some Greek literature, that, that, that phrase there that gets translated, cry aloud, is often used of a barking dog. A barking dog. Anybody ever had a neighbor with one of them barking dogs? You know? Or are you that neighbor? You know, was it your dog we, we all heard last night? I, I, I don't know. It, it, it goes on to say, he will not quarrel, meaning annoy. He will not shout or scream. In other words, here's what the prophet Isaiah was saying about the coming Messiah. He's not going to be one of those political loudmouth rebel rousers that will meet some people's expectations. He's not going to be somebody who comes and pushes himself on people and stirs up trouble. He won't berate people even with the gospel. He's not going to do that. He's not going to scold people with the gospel. And if you study his life, you will find that Jesus always, always spoke with control and dignity. Ecclesiastes chapter 9 tells us, The words of the wise heard in a quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. He came with dignity. On, on to verse 20, it says, and this is a key phrase, a bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not quench. Now, in, in ancient times, reeds, and we're talking about those things that grew by the river, they were used practically for all kinds of things in, in daily life. They were used to make mats that you could lie on at night. I, I doubt they did jazzercise or yoga or whatever. Maybe you could have used them then. They, they could use them for carpet squares and, you know, cover their dirt, dirt floors or something like that. They, if they were the right shape and size, they would also use them to make little flutes. And, and they, they would play those little flutes. But after a while, they would become brittle. They, they'd break. And when they'd break, guess what people would do? Throw them away. Just get rid of them. Toss them away. They, they, they no longer had any kind of value. Now, notice it also goes on to say a smoldering wick. And here it's talking about like a candle wick or maybe an oil lamp wick. And if you know anything about an oil lamp, it has this, this wick, and you dip it down the oil, and it'll just keep burning and burning and burning until pretty soon it, all, all that's left is just this little bit of wick that's left. And what happens when it gets down to the very end? What does it do? Well, it smolders. 
And what the Bible is saying here is, when it does, we would probably trash it. Friends, I believe that this is referring, it's making a reference to people. People whose lives are broken. People who feel worn out and wrecked and beaten down. People that the world would say are not valuable will discard you. The Roman culture did that. The Pharisees, the religious leaders of, of the day, they did that. They, they would look at certain people and say, you're not valuable. And they would just discard them, push them away. And folks, we're seeing some of that in conversations that are going on around us right now about needing to open things back up. We're, we're, we're hearing people say this, well, they were going to die anyway. That breaks the heart of our Lord. But now, friends, what would we expect from a culture that has multiple generations that have been raised on Darwinian evolution and have been had crammed down their throats? Survival of the fittest. How else would they approach something like this than devaluing life? You know, our, our society today has many people that they look at as helpless, weak, sickly, whether it's an unguarded child in a mother's womb that can't fend for itself, whether it's an old person that people think we just need to put them out to pasture. Please hear me say this, not Jesus. Not Jesus. The Bible says he will not break off that reed and toss it out. He'll make it sing again. Jesus will fill your life with music once again. He'll not, he'll not discard you. He'll strengthen you what the world would discard. I told you earlier, Jesus, when he was in the synagogue uh, in Nazareth, back in his hometown, he read a portion of scripture that said, I've come to bind up the brokenhearted. And he finished his statement by saying, you've, what, what, what you've heard today has come true. See, Jesus does. He binds up the brokenhearted. He doesn't come along and try to quench your flame. He doesn't throw out that wick. Jesus stokes your fire. Jesus gets, he, he won't put it out. If it's smoldering, what he's going to do is he's going to fan it into a brilliant flame again. See here, Jesus will not discard you. What Jesus wants to do is deliver your life to something better. I love how Jesus describes himself in Matthew chapter 11. He says this, Come to me, all of you who are tired, have heavy loads, and I will give you rest. Accept my teachings and learn from me because I am gentle and humble in spirit and you will find rest for your lives. See, Jesus comes alongside you to lift you up. He encourages you. He, he encourages you to press on. His purpose was that of an encourager. Now, I've discovered something over the years. I've discovered that of all of the reasons that people come to Christ, more people do it in a time of personal crisis, a time when they feel rejected or broken or cast out. And friends, that should encourage us right now to share the good news of Jesus like never before. And so here's what I want to, I want to ask you, I started to say I want to ask you, I want to challenge you. If, if they've got a close-up on me right now, I want to get in your face. It's basically, you don't have to do that, but I just, I just, he was going to, he was going to zoom in. We don't want to, high def, we don't want to do that, baby. Um, but I do want to challenge you with this. 
I want to challenge you to make a one or two minute video of yourself. Just use your mobile phone. Make, make a video of yourself stating how Jesus has made and still makes a difference in your life. Just a one or two minute video. And then I want to challenge you to do the next step. I want to challenge you to post it on your own social media. Post it on your social media. And I also want to ask you to then send it to me. Send me, send me a copy of it at mystoryatriverbluff.org. Mystoryatriverbluff.org because we want to put some of these on our YouTube channel. We want people to be able to see them that, that visit our church. Now some people, some people will come to Christ because they finally get intellectually satisfied. The answers are provided. But that's, that's very few. Most folks come when, when something has wrecked, like a relationship or their finances or their life from disease. They're broken, and, and they come. See, now is a good time. Now's a good time to come. And, and friends, never, ever do this. Never underestimate the value of broken, broken things in the hand of an incredibly wonderful God. If you look in the, the book of Judges, Gideon is called by God to lead God's people out in a battle against an overwhelming army of Midianites. And they're, they're, they're ill-equipped for the battle. I want you to look at this from Judges chapter 7. It says, this is what the army had. Then they blew their trumpets and they broke the jars they were holding and the whole enemy army ran away yelling. A battle was won with broken jars. In Matthew chapter 14 we read, Jesus breaking bread fed thousands, maybe up to 15,000 with five broken loaves of bread. And please, 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 never forget that the broken body of Jesus Christ bought salvation for all of mankind for whoever would trust in him. So here's a question today. You got a broken heart? Well, if you do, what should you do with it? I want to challenge you today to worship God with it. The Bible has a special book of worship in it. It's called the Psalms. And in Psalms chapter 51, the Bible tells us that the sacrifices that God desires are this, a broken and contrite heart. A broken and contrite heart. If you come to God with a broken heart and you watch, he, he'll come alongside you. He'll encourage you in your weakness. His purpose for leaving heaven and coming to earth was to be a servant, to bring a message, be a messenger, and to come be an encourager. The fourth purpose, the last purpose that I want to share with you today is this, that he came from heaven purposed to be a savior, to be the savior of the world. If you finish reading out verse 20, it says this, until he brings justice to victory and in his name the Gentiles will hope. I love the way that Eugene Peterson paraphrases in the message, translates this particular verse. He says this, before you know it, his justice will triumph. The mere sound of his name will signal hope even among far-off unbelievers. I, I love that imagery that the sound of his name will signal hope 
even for people who, who feel far away from God. And maybe, maybe that's you today. Maybe you're, maybe you're watching this at home and you're somebody who feels far away from God. You need to hear today, Jesus is for you. Jesus wants you. And you can get a victory in this life with simple faith in the name of Jesus. 1 John chapter 5, verse 4 tells us this. And this is the victory that overcomes the world. You want to know what it is? Our faith. It's, it's our faith. That's where victory in this life comes from. F-A-I-T-H. Faith. It's simple trust. Here's the deal. Triumph comes from trusting. If you want to triumph in this life, you've got to put your trust in Jesus. Don't be one of those people who say, well, one day when I get, when I get really good, one day I'm going to get all cleaned up on the inside, get my life together, and when I feel pretty good about myself, when this virus has died down, then I'm going to church, and then I'll give my life to Jesus. If that's your thinking, man, you got it all wrong. This is, this is what makes Jesus so different from all other religions. See, religions say work your way, earn your way, sweat your way. Make a pilgrimage to show God that you're serious. The good news of Jesus says, trust your way to God. Put your total trust that his son Jesus did it all because you can't. He took all the punishment of God because it would destroy you. The Apostle Paul he wrote to some of his friends in the capital city about Rome. Rome was the capital of the world at this time. Paul, Paul was writing to them about this issue. And he says in Romans chapter 10 and verse 9, he says this, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that's faith, that's trust, you will be saved. That's the purpose for his coming. It's how Jesus beats all the odds that stacked against you and I in this life. See, that, that one solitary life can heal, can deliver, can encourage your one solitary life. The one who, who came to fulfill all those 300 plus all of those Old Testament prophecies, he came and he fulfilled those. He can also fill your heart full. The question is this today. Will you trust him? Are you trusting him for the cares of this life? Let's pray. Father, we come right now in Jesus' name. We come declaring our need for Jesus. And Jesus, we come thanking you this day. We come thanking you, Jesus, that on this day, you chose to come be our servant. Jesus, you chose to be a messenger that brought the message of hope. You came to be an encourager to reach down to us in our weakness and our brokenness and lift us up. You came to save us from ourselves. So now, Jesus, we come. We come to this moment in time today, bringing ourselves to you.
confront it with the reality that to have victory in this life, we've got to have faith. We've got to have trust. And so, Jesus, right now, we make this time, this moment, we know it's an altar. We know it's an altar where we can come and trust you. It's an altar where we can come and give you our lives. It's an altar that we can come and lay our, our hearts down, knowing, Jesus, that you'll not smold, smother them, you'll not, you'll not discard them, but you'll fan new life in us. You'll put new music in our lives. And so we come to this altar right now, Jesus, that's before us. Many of us, God, have trusted you long ago for our eternal salvation, but have not been trusting you lately in this pandemic. We live in fear, and so we come back today to the altar, Jesus, saying, I'm putting my trust in you. Some saying, Jesus, I need encouragement from you, and Jesus is saying, Come to me if you're weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. I will encourage you. But we come now to this altar. You bring your life to him. And I want to say, do you bring your whole life? Are you trusting him right now with your finances? Are you doing that which he tells you to do, to trust him obediently, sacrificially, and generously with your financial resources, even in unprecedented times? Are you trusting him there? Are you trusting him with your message, with your story of life in him? Are you telling other people? Will you trust him with that this week? Jesus, we come. We come to the altar trusting that in you we will find life. Life everlasting, eternal, but life in the here and now. We come to this altar to trust you now. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you're in North Charleston this Sunday, please consider visiting us at our 9 o'clock or 1130 services. We'd love to see you. Again, for more information, visit riverbluff.org. Now go change the world.